Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sorry, I'm just going to ask him to turn on the stage lights because it's. I know I'm dark. Um, <laughs> and last week we looked at the witness of John the Baptist. And if you can recall, the people around him who were his disciples, they started leaving him and going to Jesus. And obviously for us who actually care about whether we're popular or accepted, that would be very difficult. But for John, that was so much a part of his vision and mission and his heart to want to accede to the ultimate king, the Messiah. John would eventually be executed, rejected, and moving forward, the one whom he's bearing witness to even more so was rejected. We're going to look at this rejection that Christ faced today. We often think about Jesus' rejection mostly at the end of the Gospels, at the end of the story. But here we see that this rejection was not something that just happened. It was predicted and known much earlier than the cross. And so we'll look at some of these stages of rejection of Jesus. First, in verse 9, Jesus is known by all. Second, Jesus is unknown, according to verse 10. And then third, in verse 11, Jesus is rejected. So Jesus is known, unknown, and rejected. Verse 9, where we see how Jesus is known, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. When Jesus came into this world, he comes to everyone. And that's a very important word. It means that there's no distinction between, between who Jesus comes for. When he comes, he comes to be known by all people, all states, all stages, everywhere. The light of Jesus, the word who became flesh, comes regardless also of even their desire for him to come. So whether you want him to come or not, he comes. That's what you have to understand about this idea of the light coming for everyone. And when he comes, he comes at least in this first time of coming to rescue, to save. He doesn't come to judge. There will be a time where he comes to judge, the second coming of Christ. But this first time, according to uh, Romans 1.20, he comes and therefore men are without excuse. People are without excuse. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it this way, this light shines upon every man whether he sees it or not. The implications of this is that regardless of how educated you are, how able you are, how skillful you are, how talented you are, how smart you are, it is possible to know Christ. It means that no matter also how much you have sinned, it is possible to know Christ. There is nothing you could have done in the past, no matter how dark, how evil, how shameful, how guilt-ridden, Jesus Christ can still come and bring the light of the gospel to your heart. 
That's really good news. You can be a murderer. I know we don't like to think about this. You can be a child molester. You can be a thief. You can be a cheater. You can be a liar. You can be a drug abuser. You can be a person who abuses people whom you supposedly love or are supposed to care for, protect. You can be a slave trader. You can be someone who is the most detestable of all people, but the light of Christ can still shine in your life. For some of us, we might not like that. We might think, I don't want the light of Christ to shine in that person's life. Not that mass murderer. He's someone whom the light of Christ should not shine in. But look at verse 9 again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That means that there is no one, regardless of what they've done, where the light of Christ cannot come in. Now, here's another thing. The light of Christ can shine in the heart of someone who's been in a coma for a decade. So for those of you who ever have had loved ones or who will have loved ones who are in this state, do not stop preaching the gospel, telling them about Jesus, showing them, even if they're taking their last breaths, take that moment to proclaim Christ to that person. Because according to verse 9, the true light which gives lights to everyone, it can happen to someone who has very little capacity. That means the baby that is born without a brain. In our world, that person is a nobody. To God, that person is still created in his image. That means that that person can come to Christ. Someone who has a severe case of cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, the world says we should do away with people like that. They're too much trouble for our society and our world. Verse 9 tells us this person can know Christ. Because the light of Christ can shine through. Now, you might say, does Jesus really do such things, these miracles? The answer to this question is something that I'm reminded of, uh, something that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He was a physician, and he was also a pastor. And he asked this question, do you really think it is a greater miracle to speak into the soul of a person in a coma or born with a debilitating mental state than for Jesus to save you and me? Here's the problem is that we think that, well, I'm a person of intellect, rationale, health, uh, education, social status, logic, reasonable, uh, reasoning ability, and therefore, I can understand the gospel. But the person who's in a coma, if they were to turn to Christ, that's a true miracle, not me coming to Christ. If you think that way, you do not understand the depth of sin and what the Bible talks about when it talks about being born again. Being born again is an absolute miracle. And from God's perspective, God saving someone who is in a coma versus saving me is no greater of a miracle. We just are so limited in our scope of understanding that which is miraculous. The work of salvation is miraculous. It is the greatest miracle that you could ever witness. And for some of us, we are often searching for miracles and signs from God. God, if you were to do this in my life, then I'll really believe you. 
That just means that we don't appreciate and understand enough what it took to save you. No, the light of the gospel is so powerful. It is more powerful than any it is more powerful than any atomic energy, the power of the sun. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no weapon, no laser, no MRI, no CT that can pierce through your soul and look at your heart in a way that the word of God can. And according to John chapter one, we see that Jesus is the word of God, the manifestation of God's word, the logos. Christ, when he comes into your life, he goes so deep into the secret, most inner parts of your life. He knows you in ways that no wife or husband, no child or parent could ever know you. Only Christ can know you in those secret places. And he does this through his word. It's one of the reasons why we are so, um, we must so regularly go to God's word because without that, we are lost. We so quickly run astray. The light of Christ breaks through all people, all conditions, at all times. And the only reason we have this idea of differentiating between two different types of people is because we don't understand what it takes to save us. Pretty soon we're going to go to John chapter 3 and 4. John chapter 3 and 4 has two different people. One in chapter 3 is the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Religious, moral, educated, top of his social class, someone whom when you looked at and spent time with, you would say, wow, this person obviously through their religious activities would be favored by God. Chapter four, the very next chapter is a story about Jesus encountering the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, someone who the Jews despised. This woman was not only ethnically wrong, she was also someone who morally was astray had many men in her life, and then now living with a man who was not her husband. So obviously morally loose. She was going to draw water in the heat of the day when no one did because that was the time you say, I don't want to face anyone. And she was all alone. Two contrasting figures in two chapters back to back in the Gospel of John. I ask you this question. Does it take more for Jesus to save the woman at the well, the really evil person, over Nicodemus, the religious person. And stop and think about that. If a person were to come into this room and look the part of the sinner, does it take more for Jesus to save that prostitute than it does for someone like me? And if in our secret innermost place we say yes, it takes a lot more to save someone like that prostitute than me. And my friends, we do not understand the gospel. We don't. We actually think we're pretty good. We think that it is my works. It is my morality. It is 
the fact that I preach on Sundays before people that makes me righteous before God? And the answer to that is, that's a sham. It takes an incredible work of God to save someone like me. Equally to save the person in a coma, the, the father or mother who is an alcoholic in your home who has been abusive, um, the prostitute, the drug addict, the homeless person who's harassing you every day you go to work and you have to climb over them. It takes a miracle to save you just as much as it saves anyone else. Until we really grapple with that, we will not understand who Jesus is, why he came, and why he matters to us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Good news. See, it means that no matter how far someone appears to Christ, it is possible for them to know him. We just need to have the hope and the belief and the faith that it is possible. But frankly, far too many of us have already dismissed someone as too far gone. Oh, you know what? But if you knew what they were like, you would know they could never turn to Christ. Some of you have adult children who are wayward and who have turned away from Christ, who have absolutely rejected him. And you think, oh, there's no way. I know what they're like now. Their heart is too hard. But the light of Christ is for everyone, even the most rebellious. And here's what you need to say to yourself. If Jesus can save me, he can save anyone. That has to be at the forefront of your worldview. That will impact the way you think about others. Everything else flows out of that. If Jesus can save me, he can save everyone. If Jesus can forgive me, he can forgive, I need to forgive anyone. If Jesus is hospitable and welcome to me, I need to welcome everyone. Until we really wrestle with the idea that I'm not better off, I'm not more moral, I'm not more righteous, then we'll never show mercy. We won't show kindness, compassion. We won't be welcoming to the stranger. But the problem is deep down inside, there is something that says, but it is my effort. It is my religion. It is my duties, my good works that actually makes me righteous to God. And when that happens, then the cross doesn't make sense because then Jesus didn't need to die on a cross. Jesus died on a cross for people like me. If I don't see that really in my heart of hearts, I cannot understand the cross and I will not care for others. If we don't need Christ, we will never be desperate for him. We will not enjoy him. We will not treasure him. It all flows from that idea. So Jesus came and come, has come for everyone. I do not have the right to say only certain types of people get to know him. That's the problem some of the Israelites, the Jews, had in Jesus' day. They had this idea that the Messiah only comes for certain types of people. That's not just prejudice. That's a real failure to understand who God is and what his character and nature is like. So always remember, Jesus is known. He's known to everyone. The light has, been, has come in that way. It doesn't mean everyone's saved, but it does mean everyone has the possibility of knowing him. Secondly is that 
Jesus is unknown, the opposite. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Though Jesus can be known, he is so often unknown. I think of those of us who are parents who can get a taste of what this must have been like for Jesus. Why do so many of you who are parents get so frustrated and sometimes angry and maybe even enraged by your own children, especially when they do not listen to you or fail to respect you? And that, of course, for those of us who are in that life stage as your kids age, sort of that sense of rebellion increases more and more. And when you tell them, hey, I want you to clean your room, and they go and they give you a whatever look and roll their eyes. You can almost hear the rolling of their eyes. And you're such a real pain. You mom and dad, you're a pain. And then we as parents say, I brought you into this world. I sacrificed my time, my energy, the best years of my youth, all for you. And this is the thanks that I get. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, think about what Jesus feels. If we feel that way, Jesus made you. He created you. Any good relationship you have is because he has given it to you. According to verse 10, the world was made through him. Your blessings, your gifts, everything that you own, everything that you have in your mind, your health, all of that, it's because he gave it to you because he's gracious and kind. Do you ever say to him, whatever? You ever roll your eyes, reject him? You might not think you do, but we do. Every time he tells us to come to his word and we fail to do so, we just say, I have better things to do. If your kids say that, I have better things to do than to listen to you. Well, we say that to the Lord all the time. We're always wrestling with those type of things. This is why the challenge of being a parent who is in Christ is that we have to see our hypocrisy. And it's hard. It's hard to own that. It is. Jesus came, according to Luke 19.10, to seek and save the lost. And that means he came to save us from our greatest enemy, which is you and me, ourselves. The self is the greatest enemy of our lives because our instinct, once sin entered into the world, is to always live for me, the king, the God of my world. Judges talks about the fact that they did what was right in their own eyes. Israel, that's the last verse of the book of Judges. In the garden, it's what caused Adam and Eve to turn away from God. They did what was right in their own eyes. Before the garden, Satan himself, he did what was right in his own eyes. It is the foundational premise of humanity to do what is good for themselves, for us. And it is what creates this blindness. It's an absolute rejection of God, his order, and his design. And moving forward, we're seeing it societally. We should not be surprised by all of the tumultuous changes of our world regarding gender, sexuality, family structure, governmental structures. This is a part, this has been going on for a long time. 
And when a world is resistant and rejecting God, living in darkness, or just acting the way it is when you live that way. If your child rebels against you as a parent, do not be surprised by that. That is how it should be if there is a such thing as sin. Frankly, I think the problem is that we parents, we, we think we're raising you know, God's gift to the world until they don't act that way. And then we get shocked because how dare you say that? How dare you respond to me? But that's the nature of sin. We do that against God. We see our society doing that in our world. And we do see that even from people who love us, who are supposed to love us. And so this is the default nature of a sinful, broken world. As Romans 8 says that it's a world that's groaning because of sin. We shouldn't be surprised. This is the darkness. Um, Pastor James Boyce tells a story of Donald Barnhouse, who was a preacher. He's preaching during World War II in Ireland. And during that time where he's preaching in a church, German planes were bombing the area, and so therefore there were many power outages. The lights went off in the church, but in the darkness he continued preaching. After about 20 minutes, the lights came back on, and I think you can imagine if it's completely dark at night and then suddenly the lights turn on, everyone sort of gets this surprise, you know, it's the lights are suddenly just shining brightly. And so people were stirring and having a little bit of a commotion and Donald Barnhouse, he stopped preaching for a little bit just to wait for people to settle down. One man in a loud whisper asked to the next man, uh, why did he stop preaching? What happened? And the man is thinking, come on, it's obvious. <laughs> the lights turned on. Then he's saying that. Don't you see the lights turned on? And the man responded, I, I can't see, I'm blind. He was the only person who couldn't see that the light had turned on. And when Jesus came to the world, the light finally entered. But the world is blind. And John the Baptist comes in as a witness and says, don't you see? The light is on. The light is on. And the world is saying, I don't see it. Because the world lives in darkness. Christ is meaningless to the world. And so, therefore, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9, But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what the church is. People have been enlightened to actually see Christ for who he is and who actually cherish him and want to worship him and see him as Lord and Savior. But we do live in a world that has rejected him, according to verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, I'm going to do a little grammar lesson here. You don't see this in English per se, but in the Greek, in the original you know, writing of this, this word, his own, and you see it repeated twice, his own and his own people. It's actually the same word. People is not there. So in the ESV, people is added to the pronoun. You, you're probably thinking, why are we having this grammar lesson? Well, please bear with me. His own is actually uh, modified by a neuter article. 
meaning his own things. And then his own people is same pronoun, but modified by a masculine modifier. So therefore, his own, and then the ESV rightly puts people. So it's, he came to his own things, and his own people did not receive him. The reason why that's significant is that the things refers to the people, the, the nation, the land, the temple, the festivals, the feasts. So everything that we see in the Old Testament, everything that when Israel is living and saying, I, I worship Yahweh, and all the aspects of that worship that they cherish so much and say, this is a part of our heritage. Our identity is here. What John is saying is that Jesus comes to his people because these are his things. He owns them. They are not apart from him. And we see this especially in Jude 5. Jude says this, Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, if I were to say that to a bunch of Jews, Orthodox Jews, they would stone me for being a blasphemer. Because you do not say that Jesus saved people out of the land of Egypt. Everyone knows, a Jew knows, that's Yahweh, that's God. God himself is the one who rescued Israel. And say that Jesus did it, that equates Jesus with being God. What a startling thing. So when John is saying he came to his own, his own things, it's, hey, you Jews, everything about you, you, you belong to Jesus. And not only that, your ethnic identity belongs to him. Your festivals, your feasts, everything you worship about God, that's all mine. That's all belongs to Jesus. As well as you as a people, I own you. You're mine. Jesus owns everything. So start there at that point. The very breath, everything about them, their identity, they're, without Jesus, they're worthless. There's no heritage. You have to go back to Deuteronomy to remember this, is that the Jewish people, they were a nobody without God saying, I'm going to pick you out. But there was nothing about them inherently that was better than the Hittites or Amorites. Nothing. It was simply because God said, I'm going to sovereignly choose you. And that's very important because the people of Israel thought, no, there is something good about me. That's what Nicodemus struggled with. Joseph of Arimathea, any Jew, Caiaphas, all the priests, that's why they crucified Christ in the first place, is they felt like Jesus was blaspheming. And Jesus was saying, no, you're mine. <laughs> I've come to you because you're my people. And they still rejected him. I mean, think of it this way. Imagine you're away at college and it was winter break. And so you decided to go home for Christmas. And you open the door and you say, mom, dad, I'm home. You know, brother, sister, I'm home to your siblings. And, and uh, you know, they, they look at you. They come out and they have guns. And they say, who are you? what are you talking about? I'm your son. I'm your brother. And they say, get out of here. And they start hitting you with the gun and they start kicking you and screaming and they push you out and throw you out. There would be physical pain that you would feel. 
but the emotional rejection, the psychological and spiritual rejection that you would feel would be terrible. And that's a really poor metaphor to describe what Jesus is experiencing, what John is saying that Jesus is experiencing. But Jesus is not a brother in this instance. Jesus is creator. He's the one who made them, who gives them life. Everything they own is because of him. And yet they reject him. They do not receive him. Why did that happen? Why did he have to go through this? He had to be rejected so that you and I would be accepted. And he had to be despised so that you and I would be loved. He had to be thrown out so that we would be welcomed. All of our ultimate self-centeredness and complete rejection of God, it actually led to Christ on the cross. He had to bear that rejection, being despised. Everything that we did towards him is what he paid the penalty and price for. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, in the story of Joseph, his brothers who were obviously terrible to him, by the very end of the story, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Well, that's Joseph saving the people of Israel. How much more the better, greater Joseph who would experience the evil of people so that he could rescue so many more multitudes from eternal death. Isaiah 53 pronounces the same idea. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Because he was despised and rejected, he is able to love us who should have been despised and rejected. We deserve that because that's actually what we have towards Jesus. And again, you might say, I, I, don't, I never despised Jesus. I never rejected him. You know, but it takes stages and steps for you to get to that place. If you've ever experienced real rage, rarely does it just come about. It's over time of a person constantly saying, I'll forget you, I don't need you, I don't want to be around you. And slowly but surely, if you don't deal with it, it blows up in a family setting, in, at a work context, in traffic. I mean, there's so many areas where that comes to play. We do despise Christ by our absolute refusal to trust him on a regular moment-by-moment, day-to-day basis. Ephesians 2.19 says this, though. We have to know that this fuels something about how we should live then. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you look at that word stranger, one more time, we're going to go to the Greek. Stranger is the Greek word xenos. Xenos means stranger, foreigner, and it's where we get the word xenophobia, the person who is afraid of the stranger, someone who is prejudiced, oftentimes chauvinistic. The rejection, despising of the stranger foreigner is what xenophobia ultimately is. But you know, when the Bible uses the word hospitality, it uses the Greek word philoxenia. 
the lover of the stranger, one who loves strangers. Isn't that interesting? That's what hospitality is. We tend to think that hospitality is when you invite your friends to your house. But true biblical hospitality is loving the stranger, the person who's different from you, the person who's an outcast, the person who doesn't belong, the person who's a different life stage, the person who actually, it takes work to actually welcome them, to love them, to care for them. Because their life is messy, it's broken, and you welcome them into your life and you say, not just as a person or an individual, but even as a community. And so if you're in access with youth and there are some newcomers, so easy and tempting to just stay with people that you care about, that you're regularly a part of. But if the stranger comes, the outsider, phylloxenia is what we do when we realize, oh, first, I was a stranger. I was the foreigner. And that's exactly what drives everything. Until you see that Jesus was rejected for you, you cannot love the stranger. It's just not possible. Not really. Because strangers require labor. But my friends, Jesus required, uh, he was required to do work to love you and me. He, to love us, to, be a, to have phylloxenia for us, he had to die on a cross. He had to suffer so that we could be welcomed into his family. Not as slaves or as servants, but as sons and daughters. Until you get that, until we really understand and grapple with that, only then will we be the most welcoming, compassionate, kind, merciful. Mercy flows out of the reality that I've been shown mercy. I appreciate what Tim Keller says about this. He says, Jesus Christ, who was in God's household, he was the son, was turned into an alien and a foreigner. He was cast out so we, the foreign, foreigners and aliens, could be brought into God's household. Why? Because we deserve to be cast off by God. We deserve to be excluded. We deserve to be in exile. Because even though God has created us and made us and we owe him everything, we live our own little lives the way we want. We live as though we're our own masters and we take credit for all that. You see, when we fail to see Jesus was rejected because of me, we become self-centered. I do. And the last thing I want to do is welcome anyone into my life. I don't want to labor for other people. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give. I don't want to be caring and loving and gracious and kind. Then I, or if I do that, it's for my duty. I should do that. I'm a pastor. I'm, I want to be thought of as having a good reputation of someone like that. And that is a sham. It's always a phony and a fake. But when you see out of the thankfulness of the fact that, Jesus, you were rejected because of me, how can I not be welcoming to somebody who is different, who is loving, who is rejected? And if I fail to do that, that just says a lot about the fact that I actually don't believe Jesus has been rejected because of me. That's self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness, it clouds my heart from seeing Christ in the gospel. So then you have to ask the question, am I still living in darkness? Has the light of the Christ shone forth in my heart? 
It's really a, a logical flow. And until it all plays out in how we act, we can't hide it. We can fake it, but that fakery will eventually come to reveal itself for what it is. This has to impact how we live. Do you reject people because they're different, even in your own heart? Do you welcome the stranger, the person who maybe takes a little bit more work, maybe someone who has disability, someone who comes from a broken home, their personality is a little bit off-putting. They don't necessarily have the same commonality and structures that we do. Maybe they take more work to love. They don't look like us. They don't quite fit in. If we fail to welcome this person, we are rejecting Christ. I mean, that's sort of the flow of this whole thing. Are you failing to see that you are the stranger, the xenos? But Jesus brought you into his family despite your rejection of him. Despite the fact that you rejected him, he still welcomed you into his family. He brought you in. He was sent. He came into the world because he loved you and he gave himself for you. When you know this to be true, you will never be disappointed. So when you come to this table, come not only understanding this for yourself, but that it will actually make a difference in how you relate to others, to those whom you are called to care for and love, but especially the Xenos, the stranger, the foreigner amongst us. Because we're all foreigners and strangers. Let's pray together. Father, we see, O oh Lord, your love for us through your son Jesus, who came to rescue people who were not accepting of you initially, O oh Lord. Our hearts were hardened. There was no desire to love you. We refused to be with you. But we thank you for the light of the gospel that shone forth despite our desire for it. There is no one here in this room who knows and trusts you who is not an absolute work of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to pierce through heart and mind and to transform and change and give new life. It is the very reason we're able to come to this table because you have opened our eyes to yourself. Oh Lord, for those who have not trusted in you, who have not been born again, may they today surrender and see the wondrous work of your son Jesus and believe with all their heart and confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Father, for Christ, for your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.